Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 27. Long live the king. The 22nd of March, 1622, was a Friday, like any other, in the growing colony of Virginia. The cold and darkness of winter was receding, to be replaced with spring. Like every winter in the New World, it had seen deaths among the settlers, but long gone were the starving times, that deadly winter which a few of the colonists still remembered. The survivors had been few in number regardless, but they had been joined over the last decade by hundreds of new settlers. Whether they had come to start a new life, or merely to make it rich from a harvest or two, their lives revolved around the first great cash crop of the English colonies, tobacco. Spreading out from the first settlement of Jamestown, the English established plantations along the James River, building on land which had been conquered by force of arms by Virginia's first governor, Thomas West, the third Baron de la War. Those had been violent times, as the neighbouring Powhatan Indians were pushed back with devastating and often cruel tactics. Peace had come after four long years of war, and since then relations with the Powhatan seemed cordial. Trade had grown between the two peoples, although the constant English attempts to convert their neighbours to Christianity often soured attitudes. There was still occasional violence. A high-ranking member of the Confederacy had been murdered by an Englishman just months before this Friday morning, and the Virginia Company's response hadn't been particularly apologetic. And yet still, on this morning, everything seemed fine. Across the colony, the Indians entered settlements to talk and trade and even share breakfast with the English. Yet even as the Europeans and the Americans talked and haggled and broke bread, a warning was racing to the leaders of Jamestown. 
The English attempts at conversion hadn't all failed, and this spiritual success would reap earthly rewards as a new brother in the faith tried to warn them of treachery. This warning would reach the authorities at Jamestown just in the nick of time, as across the colony, conversations abruptly ended. Traded items were suddenly discarded, and food was left uneaten. The Powhatan struck with the element of surprise, the walls of settlements useless, the guns of militia unloaded, as the visitors picked up knives, axes, and anything at hand, and brought them to bear on the colonists. Jamestown was largely spared through the warning of the Christian Powhatan, but the outlying settlements were devastated. Around 350 colonists, a third of the colony, lay dead in their fields, in the streets, in their homes, and many of the largest tobacco plantations were burnt to the ground before the Jamestown militia could react. Yet, react they did, marching out of the gates to carry out reprisals. The Second Anglo-Powhatan War had begun. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we saw the death of James VI and I, the first king of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and the first king of Great Britain, even if that title was never really accepted by his subjects. We left the once prince, now King Charles, at his father's deathbed, with George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, in tears beside him. The king had promised to treat Buckingham with the same favour his father had shown him, and as we shall see today, this was potentially the first of Charles I's many mistakes as sovereign of free kingdoms. Speaking of those mistakes, if James's English reign is popularly remembered for the gunpowder plot, the Irish and American colonies, and the King James Bible, then the elephant in the room of Charles's reign looming like 19th century Lancashire, is the little dispute of the British civil wars. Much like James, though, his son's reign isn't simply a prelude to that conflict. Charles and his subjects weren't just killing time, twiddling their thumbs until they got to the business of killing each other, and over the next few episodes we will go into detail about exactly what happened between the death of James and the kingdom kerfuffle. Today, we'll begin with a brief tour of those three kingdoms and touch on the situation in each, as well as cover some of the administrative apparatus which I've avoided so far, but will come up again repeatedly over the next however many episodes it takes to cover the next 35 years. So before we restart the clock on the narrative, we should take a look at the realm Charles now ruled. First, his ancestral home of Scotland. Scotland had, aside from his royal father's brief visit in 1617, gone without the presence of a king since 1603. Charles would follow this tradition, and it would take him eight years to visit and receive his Scottish coronation. In his absence, much like under James, the governance of Scotland was left in the hands of capable Scottish nobles. In most areas, Scotland governed itself. The one exception as under James, was religion, and Charles's interference in the Kirk 
would have serious consequences. Ireland's government shared many similarities with the one in Scotland, summed up in Kishlansky's Monarchy Reformed, in which he describes both governments as following, quote, a pattern of benign neglect, punctuated by periods of malignant attention. The government in Dublin was still highly militarised, with the Crown-appointed Lord Deputy, at this time the first Viscount Falkland, Henry Carey, and the court of Castle Chamber. Now hold on, you may be thinking to yourself, what about the Irish Parliament? It is true that Ireland had a Parliament. The body created the Kingdom of Ireland for Henry VIII, and more recently had petitioned King James to head off anti-Catholic reforms. But it was rarely summoned, and there were sometimes decades without an Irish Parliament. The plantation efforts in Ulster and elsewhere in Ireland continued unabated, although their success in pacifying and quote-unquote civilising the island was patchy at best, as we shall see soon enough. The Kingdom of England was the largest, both in geography as well as in population, of Charles's new kingdoms. It was also where Charles spent almost all of his life, and was the centre of political power for all three kingdoms. England had encompassed Wales ever since the reign of Henry VIII, when it was incorporated into the English political and legal system. This had removed many of the holdovers from previous centuries, such as the decentralised power of the Marcher Lords, and the process was repeated in the north of England too. Yet England was still a hodgepodge of contradictory, overlapping administrations. Aside from the holdings of the non-royal aristocracy, there were the duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall. The Duchy of Lancaster managed the royal estates scattered throughout the kingdom, while the Duchy of Cornwall administered the lands of the Prince of Wales. In Kent and Sussex, there were a number of sink ports with their own rights and privileges, and their own Lord Wardens to organise a defence in case of attack from France. The county of Cheshire was a palatine, and so outside the jurisdiction of royal courts. York was the seat of the Council of the North, Ludlow the Council in the Marches of Wales, both surviving the actual breakup of the Marches, but retaining their own jurisdictions outside of common law. These are just a few of the various administrations which made up England, with each having their own rights, responsibilities, and incomes. Speaking of law, let's talk about justice. In England, local justice was undertaken primarily by sheriffs, who appointed their own under-sheriffs and constables. They operated within their counties, arresting alleged criminals and transporting them to trial. These trials often took place at the twice-annual Assizes, and it was the role of sheriffs and their deputies to organise and accommodate these events. We heard about the Assizes in the Discovery of Witchcraft episode, and they will appear many times in the future. The sheriffs themselves were appointed by the monarch, on the advice of the Lord Chancellor, who was meant to take local relationships into account. Notably, to be made a sheriff meant being unable to stand for Parliament if one was summoned. Keep this in mind for future episodes. Once we reach the policy of ship money, it will be the sheriffs who are expected to collect it, hurting the prestige of the office dramatically since the policy itself was so despised. <laughs> 
Justices of the peace were another integral part of the English judicial system, as their name might suggest. The Lord Chancellor appointed Justices of the Peace on the advice of the Lord Lieutenant and other county elites, and their number would grow throughout the century. They heard all criminal cases, handled minor misdemeanours themselves, and passed more serious crime onto the Assizes. While their responsibilities, like the Sheriffs, increased over the century, for some, the title of Justice of the Peace was merely an honorific, an extra source of honour and prestige for the gentleman who received it. The idea that it was actually a job with actual responsibilities would have been quite irritating for these folk. However, the vast majority of JPs took their duties very seriously, and their quarterly gatherings were the perfect opportunity to trade news and gossip, as well as to discuss political events. Meetings such as these had always been opportunities to discuss who would be sent to Parliament from their community, but their lists of grievances to go along with their MP were becoming longer. The final form of local English government we'll cover today is that of the Lord Lieutenant. The Lord Lieutenant was generally appointed from among the local aristocracy, and they were the military commander of their county's militia. As warfare had become the sole preserve of the monarch, and private armies had turned into relics of sedition, the role of Lord Lieutenant satisfied the martial honour of aristocrats. The Lord Lieutenant was generally of high rank, with the position of Deputy Lieutenants occupied by more minor nobility, with the landed gentry holding the positions of militia captains. All well and good. The militias would keep the king's peace, the nobility would get legitimate martial activity, and England would maintain a steady population of trained men in the case of war. Well, not quite. Much like the Justice of the Peace, holding a position in your county's militia was a source of pride and honour, regardless of whether you actually did your job. It was rare for the militia to be mustered even once a year for training, and when they did, they rarely had the supplies or equipment they needed. Charles instituted some reforms over his reign, increasing their size and improving their training, but he also made the Lord Lieutenancy a lifelong and hereditary title, which didn't help with corruption or inactivity. It's no surprise, then, that the militias would be largely useless when the Scots invade. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations 
hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? In matters of religion, the three kingdoms were no more united than in their politics. Ireland had possibly the greatest variety. The native Irish population, including the Old English, or Anglo-Irish, were largely Catholic. The decade and a half of plantation under the Stuarts had introduced a large minority of Scottish settlers, and they were mostly Presbyterian. The English landlords and administrators were a minority within a minority, and they adhered to the Church of England. In Scotland, the Presbyterian Kirk was ascendant, although there were holdouts of Catholicism in the Highlands and Islands. The Kirk was, hmm, critical of what they considered popish trappings, such as bishops, worshipping at the altar, and other unnecessary paraphernalia. As a side note, isn't paraphernalia a wonderful word? It's a bit more grand than just saying stuff. Well, guess who had a lot of stuff? The Church of England. We discussed the COE at length in a previous episode, so I won't repeat myself, but Charles loved his bishops, much like his father. Alongside the Protestant conformists were the remaining Catholics, a minority who were more or less quiet, and the Reformists, better known as the Puritans, who were absolutely not quiet. They will play an increasing role in our narrative over the next few months. Bringing the churches of England and Scotland closer in practice will be an ambition on both sides of the border, which would be great if they weren't directly opposed. Before we cross the ocean, we'll cross the sea to the Isle of Man, because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. The Isle of Man last popped up in Pax Britannica when the Stanley family settled their inheritance lawsuit over the title of Lord of Man. Ever since, the lordship had been held by the 6th Earl of Derby, William Stanley. The Stanleys were one of the great families of England and will play a role in the upcoming civil wars. The future 7th Earl of Derby, James Stanley, currently known as Lord Strange, will one day be called the Great Stanley, or in the original Manx, and Stanlac Moor. In the coming 1625 Parliament, he will be elected MP for Liverpool, and raised to the Order of the Bath upon Charles's coronation, as well as being appointed the Lord Lieutenant of Lancashire and Cheshire. At this point, Lord Strange's priority was to restore his family's financial situation, which was still recovering from the lawsuit, and he did so through reforming and, in some eyes, exploiting the family estates, including the Lordship of Man. In the East, the East India Company maintained a few factories along the route to the Spice Islands, having fought against the Portuguese and the Dutch. They continued to bring in vast profits for investors and the Crown through duties, although this would not be forever. In America, Charles's dominions were scattered and small, but growing. In the Caribbean, 
the island colony of St. Kitts would soon be joined by other English West Indian colonies. In the Atlantic was Bermuda, and along the eastern coast of North America were the colonies of Newfoundland, Plymouth, and Virginia. As we followed events in London, we've skipped over one of the most important formative events that struck the colony of Virginia. Relations between the colonists and the locals deteriorated with the death of the Sagadahoc Poetan, as well as Pocahontas. With these voices for peace silenced, simmering tensions boiled over. The English repeatedly attempted to convert Powhatan children to Christianity covertly, proselytising in the guise of education, and early in 1622, a high-ranking Powhatan was murdered by a colonist. After the Virginia Company failed to make amends for the act, the new Sagadahoc, Opekankanok, which I am probably mispronouncing, began planning an assault, possibly the last assault, on the English colony of Virginia. That assault was the massacre I described in the vignette beginning today's episode. The Anglo-Powhatan War was a brutal and bloody affair, joining together the colonists and the Powhatan Confederacy's native enemies. The war would last for years, as no peace really held up. Sometimes this was due to the Powhatan peace delegations being poisoned, stabbed and shot, but even when an official ceasefire was declared, violence continued as both sides raided the other. During these years, the colony of Virginia underwent a significant legal change. In April 1623, in the light of the 1622 massacre and the general mismanagement of the colony and the company, the Privy Council launched a commission to investigate Virginia, prompted by the company's shareholders who were themselves in a dispute with the company management. It also ordered the Virginia Company to aid their investigations, as well as send help to the colonists engaged in their fight, but by this point, despite the commercial success of tobacco, it was bankrupt, and the company refused to meet its obligations. The Privy Council then suggested that the previous charters be revoked, and the company fall under the direct control of the Crown, as it had in 1606. The company refused. Finally, the Attorney General began the legal proceedings to annul the company's charter. In May 1624, the Virginia Company ceased to be, and Virginia became a Crown Colony, with a Crown-appointed Governor. However, it maintained its General Assembly of elected representatives to advise him. So those are the realms that Charles now rules. The King is dead. Long live the king. If you recall, the last mission of the Duke of Buckingham, which he was in the middle of when the news reached him that James was on his deathbed, was to marry Charles to the Princess of France, Henrietta Maria. In November of 1624, a marriage treaty had been signed between the two courts. We touched on the details of this arrangement last time, but broadly speaking, the French were promised wide-ranging religious concessions, from the construction of a Catholic chapel in each royal residence for the princess and her household to use, to the relaxing of anti-Catholic laws. Some of these promises were fulfilled, such as the chapels, whereas others were not, specifically toleration. The disappointment on both sides of this arrangement would cloud the marriage in its early years. 
never minding the death of James, the marriage proceeded as planned. A proxy marriage took place at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris in early May 1625, with the Duke de Chevreuse standing in for the Duke of Buckingham. A proxy proxy marriage, if you will. It would be another month until the husband and wife would see one another, as Henrietta Maria made her procession to Boulogne along with her enormous household of hundreds. Around the same day as their marriage, differences in calendars make it hard for me to establish exactly when both happened, the funeral for the late King James was held on either the 5th or the 17th of May. The funeral ceremony lasted more than two hours, with the Bishop of Lincoln, John Williams, giving the sermon. He was buried beneath the Henry VII monument, sharing the vault with the first Tudor king and his wife, Elizabeth of York. Just a few weeks afterwards, Charles's new queen arrived in England for the first time. Henrietta Maria arrived at the port of Dover, and was greeted by her royal husband and an entourage of English notables. The English described her as having a combination of sweetness and wit, in the words of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Not bad for a 15-year-old in a foreign country meeting her husband for the first time. She was by no means meek, as shown when she entered the royal carriage and found that there was no space for her lady of honour, laying in to her English hosts for the slight. Nevertheless, it appears that early attitudes were warm and friendly between the two parties. But the business of state could not be put off forever. Next time, Charles will call the first parliament of his reign, having wisely put it off to avoid preemptive criticism of his Catholic marriage. This parliament will last just over a week, and become known to history as the useless parliament. A few days after the last episode, Pax Britannica surpassed 100,000 downloads, just over half a year in. This is incredible. Thank you to all of my listeners, new and old. Special thanks to those who have taken the time to leave a review. They're all lovely to read, and hopefully more than a few people listening right now chose to do so because of those reviews. Also, in roughly a month's time from when this comes out, on the 12th and 13th of October, I'll be speaking at Sound Education, the educational podcasting conference held at Harvard. If you're in the area and fancy a look ahead in the narrative, I'll be talking about the American colonies during the British Civil Wars. I'll also be on a panel, and there's a history podcast meetup, including Mike Duncan. It's going to be a lot of fun, and if you're interested in finding out more, go to soundeducation.fm. Thank you to the peers of the realm, the royal headsman, executed today, Her Grace the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, His Grace the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Most Honourable Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, the Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, the Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner, the Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence, the Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson, the Earl of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns, the Earl of Nottingham, John Toogood, the Earl of Worcester, Alan Goldstein, Stephen, Earl of Warwick, and the Earl of Bradford, Richard Little. Remember that you can join the peerage at patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. 
Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.